Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio, conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate with producer and host, Linda Lombardo. Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio. This is Linda Lombardo. It's been a long time since David Christopher and I have had a conversation. David is author of The Holy Universe, soon to be called The Seeker and the Sage, his fabulous, fabulous book. We've had these conversations over the years where I think the best conversations somehow haven't been recorded. Yes. We, we say hi, and then we just start. And after the fact, we say, geez, we should have recorded that. So let's see what happens. <laughs> but welcome, David, to Voice Thanks. of Evolution Radio. <laughs> Thanks so much, so much. I appreciate it. It's lots <laughs> of fun. Yeah, let's see how this works. If we have microphones and cameras on, we may behave differently. Who knows? We just sit here and stare at each other because we have no idea right. what to say. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think we're going to do that. So. I don't think so either. So what's new? There's the question. For you or for me? Uh, well, we can, we can both. <laughs> he said, bantering it back to the host. You know, I had just started to um, say that 2019 was starting out in a very interesting way. The energy feels different. Have you noticed anything about 2019? I don't know that I have only because I was so absorbed into the work that I do to pay the bills versus the work that I do to serve both myself and I hope the larger human family, I guess. That's kind of a, feels like an interesting word. Um, I was so absorbed in the end of the year stuff that's all around taxes and this, that, and the other thing, both for myself and also for the people who are my clients, that I just haven't had time to notice any difference. I did notice one thing, though, that in the midst of all that, I had two messages out of the blue come to me saying, loved your book, want to talk to you. And I now have a rule that if anyone wants to talk to me about my book, I'm happy to do so, but they have to come with five specific questions tied to specific page numbers so we can talk about more specific things is that for me that's a lot of the fun of saying okay well where did this idea come from how did this happen what was it how was this channeled and whatnot and i and i had to add these specific pages because the last conversation i had they were more general so tell me about pachamama or what what is it about pachamama alliance and i was like okay i want a closer question i want something that's more specific to something that the seeker said or something that the sage said or and i imagine with your work you know something that the keeper said it's like someone um, saying so or, so what do you really believe about the universe and it's yeah <laughs> how many years do you have and, yeah. and i would imagine that that's what happens with your book i know when we talked about your book on voice of evolution radio you read certain segments and i had certain pages that i wanted yeah. to talk about the entire book is, is just one gorgeous lyric poem, as far as I'm concerned. But those are the big questions, right? Since we, we both write about the universe. A lot of folks have read uh, the author Harari, who, who wrote the book Sapiens and Homo Deus. And his last one was 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. I had been reading that, and it kind of, it actually put me into a bit of a funk, Really? Um, well, because you know, wh what he's asserting is that we're bra really breaking from history and coming up with, um, with a potential merging of biotechnology and artificial intelligence. And 
it, it got me on several levels, one of them being, really, we're just going to do this because there's money to be made? Is this how we make our decisions? Which is traditionally, the answer is yes. That's how we've made our, our uh, technological decisions, is that there was money to be made, and there was money, um, fortunes to be made, actually. So that, that just, there was something that just felt so disorienting about that. I don't know how true it is, and I don't know how true I would want it to be. He also talked about, and, and this I'm probably not going to get correct, but he talked about story and how humans walk around with stories and that our stories are, are just completely inaccurate and that we need to recognize that. We need to have a story of, in a way, it's almost like he's saying we need a story of no story. And that also feels a little disorienting too. But intriguing. There's something intriguing about that story of no story, because I get what he's saying. I think a lot of what we're all experiencing right now is the fact that we've had all these stories and whether there are familial stories or societal stories, government mm -hmm. stories, global stories, they're all falling short for us or they're all betraying us in some way or at least it feels like something of a betrayal that if you do x and y you should come up with z and it's not true anymore everything from going to college or investing your money or all the you know all the things that i certainly grew up with and and what i was told would make me a good citizen and a good human being and a happy person none of it really feels like it's true so Mm -hmm. All those stories feel like they're a betrayal right now. And, and we're in a place of wanting, I think, to write new stories mm -hmm. and yet not knowing where to begin. I, there's a global story that needs to be written. We can individually write our own stories. And as long as they benefit us and they don't do any harm, there's nothing wrong with a good story like that. But the world needs a new global story. Don't get me started about here in the States and everything that's going on here. It's insanity. It's absolute insanity. I, that's the yeah. only way I can, I can describe it. And that's me being really nice. <laughs> well, that, that's interesting that there's a couple of threads that we can go there that your comment triggers in me. One of them being the insanity of it. I don't know if you're familiar with Hans Rosling, um, author who's been on TED for quite a while, actually a professor who's been on TED Talks for a while, talking about statistics of the human condition. And his latest book on factfulness talks about how actually things for humans have been getting a lot better over the past couple of centuries. And he uses different metrics, like the number of people who have access to electricity, the number of people who have access to vaccinations for children, the number of girls graduating from school, the number of years girls are going to school as compared to boys. And all these indicators are actually getting a lot better. He really makes the argument, looking at the statistics from the UN and from his years of research, that there are no longer this huge pile of have-nots with a small elite of haves, that there are actually four levels of living on planet Earth, and that actually very, relatively speaking, there are fewer people in poverty than there were, say, 20 years ago. It still is a billion people at level one, he calls it, where you know, they're, they're struggling for, for water, for food, to, to care for their children. But there are a lot of people who've moved up to where 
they don't have the big struggle for get, getting water. It's still a chore. They have transportation on bicycles, which is a lot better than just only having, uh, only being able to walk to where you need to go. Um, they have access to more food. And then the level two, it goes beyond that to where you get into level four, which is basically anyone, pretty much anyone who's watching this is in level four. But he really makes a strong case that things, we, we have this story that's been fed to us by the media and by our culture that things are horrible and they're only getting worse for humans. And it's a good perspective and, and it's a good book to read in that regard that actually that's not true. One statistic that struck me was that there are 2 billion children alive today. And he asked, according to UN projections, how many children will be alive in the year 2100 or 2100? And the answer is 2 billion. But actually, we're not going to have an enormous influx of children. More are going to live to adulthood. So we are going to have a population increase, but it's only because of child mortality and people having fewer accidents and having more access to healthcare. With the higher education for women and, and girls come fewer people. So it's, it's kind of a mind bender to, to read his stuff and say, actually, things are, for humans are a lot better than they were. However, there's one thing that I, a very important point that I would love to talk with him about is that he talks about humans and he doesn't really talk a whole lot about what about the non-human world and the non-human species. He doesn't make that connection, which is, I think, vital. I mean, it, it, yes, things are getting better for humans at the expense of the biosphere. And the problem is, is the biosphere was kind of like we're all riding in an airplane and everyone's moving up to first class. The problem is someone's drilling rivets out of the airframe and selling them to passengers and say, hey, you need more rivets. And there are people who are actually selling rivets and marketers in the airplane marketing. Have, oh, you got to have more rivets because rivets are the thing to have. And we're paying people to drill rivets out of the airplane. So while we may be feeling like we may be more richer, both subjectively and objectively, we may be wealthier, I want to hear more from him on, well, at what expense? Where does that, where does that wealth come from? Where does that capacity, is there, is there a price that is not being, or a cost that is not being accounted for in the increase of human physical well-being and psychological and emotional is a whole nother story that, that I would like to talk with them about too. That's an interesting part of the story is that as you and I, through our work with Pachamama Alliance, a lot of the work they talk about in the symposium there and that I talk a bit about in, in, in The Seeker and the Sage is how bad things are for humans. And yet he's coming along saying, well, yes, they're bad, but not as bad as they were and they are getting better. So let's pay attention to that. Let's not get into the drama that we're being told about in the media. Because of course, the, the media doesn't talk about how 40 million airplanes this year landed without any incident whatsoever. You know, next story, that's not interesting. What's interesting is when someone crashes or that so many more children are not dying of diseases that are so easily preventable. It's much more interesting to go to a very poor place that is still beset with those problems and to report on that. He lays some of the cause for our misconceptions at the feet of, of media, but also in our proclivity for drama, too. There is that, that we, we lean into that. And, oh, my God, what is that? Well, are there pictures? Or, are, you know, is there a video now? You know, right. And, and 
I saw a new story really around media and what do we want to hear or what, what role could media play in the world is um, I think is ripe for the happening that it, it would be interesting to be able to turn on a new show. And I know there are some more, more often than not, it's public broadcasting, but you are able to turn on certain programs or listen to certain programs and hear something that really puts things into a more realistic perspective. And as you were talking, I'm thinking, well, we should just reach out to him and both interview him and do it. (laughs) You know, I would think that would be an interesting conversation to have. And if we are doing better, and I, and I do believe that we are in terms of humanity and what's available to us in terms of progress on all different levels, then where is the part where we understand that progress really is only progress if it has those other non-human beings in mind, if it has the planet right. in mind, that we're, you know, that we're looking at a living systems philosophy for how we live our lives and how we create something new. If, you know, you're talking before about, well, if we can make money at that, sure, let's do it. There needs to be a stop where someone says, well, wait a minute. Yeah, great. Let's make, we can make money at that. Mm-hmm. Do that though in a way that does no harm. Well, yeah. And that unfortunately is in certainly in our culture and our society too, is the measure by which an organization, whether it's nonprofit or for profit, uh, that's the measure by which it is allowed to proceed is, will it make money? Will it, ma- will it be financially viable? Which I'm not saying that's a bad thing in of itself, but as the only thing, that's how we decide now, is that a tiny fraction of the population is deciding what technologies to pursue, primarily with the question of how much money can be made here. Mm-hmm. So we don't develop technologies through a more democratic process. It's, it's a much different process. I don't know what you would call it, but that is a huge issue. I mean, no, no one asks us whether, whether or not would it be a good idea if everyone had a cell phone. No one asked us would it be a good idea for everyone to be on a computer in our culture. Right. And we, we simply have not been asked. And I can imagine some people saying, well, I don't get it. That's, that's not okay. I mean, come on. That's not okay. Look, look how much we've improved your life. It's like, well, don't talk to me about improving my life unless you've asked me, how do I want to improve my life? There's something about not being asked that doesn't feel quite right. If that's the argument that someone is using that, oh, well, this is benefiting humanity. Well, did humanity want that? Is that really the motivation behind it? And I'm not saying that people don't have positive motivations in in that regard, but without that financial success, it doesn't matter. What an or how well an organization is serving humanity. Conversely, it doesn't necessarily matter how poorly an organization is serving humanity if it is financially viable. I don't know. That is such a deep systemic thing. <laughs> I don't know how you change that. I don't know either. I mean, it's not even decades to make changes like that. You really have to change how you see things, how you perceive the world. I mean, you know, we don't want to take away creativity from people. We don't want to take away innovation. 
Mm-hmm. And, and yet everyone is trying to sell you something. That's the <laughs> best thing. It's the new best thing. And we talk about being such a materialistic world. And yet people are yeah. and, and organizations are cranking out products or services for us that they tell us we have to have. And there's something in our story that says, "What well, I better have this or I'm going to be... And yeah. fill in the blank about whatever that is you're going to be. I know a lot of people who don't have televisions. They do have laptops, but mm-hmm. I know quite a bit of people who just say, no, I don't have it. I don't have one in the house. I don't watch. So when you start to talk to me about something about Madam Secretary or even Game of Thrones or uh, yeah. <laughs> any of any, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. And you have to, uh, wonder, how could you not know about that? That's an interesting thing. I mean, I for for decades, I've actually never owned a television. Now I have I've lived in households with televisions in them. And and when I was an airline pilot and I was sitting waiting for an airplane for an airplane to fly, I would be in the hotel catching up on years of Simpson episodes. Um, That's how I finally got a lot of that. And and Seinfeld, it's like, oh, the Seinfeld. Okay, well, this is kind of fun you know, and day after day of waiting for an airplane to fly. And so I caught up on a lot of that. But beyond that, I, my thing is that, my God, if you have a family, when do you have a chance to actually do that? And I'm kind of, you know, some people might say I'm kind of handicapped in that I have a body that needs eight to nine hours of sleep a night. And Part of me really envies those folks who have, who only need six. I mean, good Lord, but I can do with two or three extra hours in a day. But it's, it's interesting that, you know, the, the, the living without television, it seems to be kind of a subcultural thing that. It is. We, the circles we run into it, it. And it is, you know, and I'm, and I'm not going to lie and say, you know, the truth is that we have a little bit of ego attached to that of how much better we are for not having a television. For me, there is. But also there's some reality too of just, I just don't, there are so many things pulling at my time and wanting to be done that yeah. it just never is a priority, um, especially with a family. One of the most poignant sequences in a movie by the Yes Men. I don't know if you're familiar with the Yes Men. There are two gentlemen, I think they started doing this when they're in their late twenties, early thirties. They started posing as officials representing corporations, representing governments. And it was a complete hoax. So they would show up to conferences and announce things like Union Carbide has, or actually one, the the most famous one was the the day that Andy Bickelbaum, I believe, or was it his partner, and his partner's name escapes me, got on to television and CNN as a representative of Union Carbide and saying Union Carbide has an announcement we are taking full responsibility for, for the Bhopal disaster. We are going to work with the Indian government to work out equity, you know, an equitable solution, and just on and on and doing what the right thing, which is accepting responsibility. And apparently Union Carbide stock dropped by an enormous amount before they realized this is a hoax. Uh-huh. Um, they have posed as officials for representing the uh, World Bank. Um, declaring that the World Bank is now closing its doors. 
Oh my God. Because all of our metrics are wrong and we really want to create a world that works for people and not corporations. And we realized all these years and on and on and on. They showed up at an accountant's conference making that announcement. And the accountants were so excited, like, oh my God, what a wonderful thing. And it was all fake. What was their purpose? Was their, it to, to say to them, hey, here's the right thing? Or were they, they really just trying to create disorienting events? They were trying to disrupt mm. and tell what they saw as the truth and pose as Chevron saying, I don't know if they actually did this, but saying, yes, we are going to pay Ecuador the two or $3 billion that they owe Ecuador for cleanup of oil messes, that you know, we've been really remiss in not doing what we're supposed to do instead of just paying our lawyers to keep it in the courts forever and ever. So, so no, they saw their job as going in and calling greed, cronyism, the dark side of capitalism, which I don't think it's all necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you could say that I'm that, you know, we both work for corporations. So, you know, in some level, we're participating in that system. But they want to shed light on the dark side of capitalism in the hopes to change things. The reason why I bring them up, though, is that kind of what I've been, you, you kind of asked what's, what's new. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. There is I one remember, wonderful, yes. yeah, I actually can, I can sometimes track conversations I that way. I remember asking that <laughs> The reason why I bring that up is that one of them at one point essentially drops out of doing these actions. And they have an, the Yes Men have a whole organization, yesmen.org and whatnot. They have a whole organization behind them to help put these pranks on. There was an action that, that they were working on to do against Shell going into the Arctic, to drill in the Arctic. And Andy had dropped out because he had a family. And he didn't tell his partner that he was having another child, a fourth child, which, I mean, you know, he said, oh, my God, I'm having four children. And what am I doing? Because the last thing the world needs is another level four Western expensive child. But that's a whole nother story. But at one point, he says, what do I do here? When, he, when they ask him, come back, we need you. We need you, to, we need you for this action. We need you, we need you for this, um, this uh, stunt that we're going to pull. And he says, you know, I have a family to raise. So do I just do my, just kind of hunker down and do the best I can raising my family as the, the biosphere heats up and as the extinction proceeds? Mm -hmm. Or do I go do something to just stop these bastards? These yeah. loving children of God who are misguided. That's, that's the definition of bastard, by the way. Is it really? Um, <laughs> Very interesting. And yeah, well, I just came up with that. Oh, um, good. I like it. I think you yeah. should put it out there. Do a, you know, like do one of those memes or one of those quotes <laughs> with a really pretty sunrise in the background or something, and it'll be, you'll, it'll go viral in no time. Right. So, and, and that is the question that I'm running into because I went from single for a long, 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 long time to boom, having a partner and a child moving, moving together. Mm -hmm. We got into a new house and we moved in together. So when we finally got together, it was, there was no ease, trans, ease of transition coming in. And it's been family that has been occupying my time so much. And I really miss not having the time or being able to make the time to do work like this, like talking about these important ideas and spreading some of these ideas and doing what we can to maybe change the story to a more human-centered or not even human-centered but life-centered story 
I guess that's really what the two of us are really about is helping to create a life-centered story and not an economic-centered story or a human-centered story, or for that matter, a non-human-centered story. And I miss not being part of that as much as I would like to be. And, you know, we go through phases in our life or not, I don't, I don't mean phase because that sounds um, very inconsequential. We have transitions in our lives. Where our, yes, our focus is on one thing more than another. And then, you know, all of a sudden, if that focus shifts or if something gets back into balance, it begins to change again. I've been extremely fortunate to have more time to focus mm -hmm. on that. You know, the writing of In the Soul's Waiting Room after the first 11 episodes, it became clear that I needed to do the book. And if only to honor everything that went into the writing of the podcasts. And I was really kind of sorry I didn't take better notes during the pre and post production times. Uh, but I, I had no trouble coming up with things. I, I, you know, I did. And now, because my son has grown, you know, I'm focusing on the forest therapy. I'm focusing on my writing and some podcasting. Mm -hmm. Doing something I love, and that's having these kind of conversations, and especially having them with you. We always have fabulous conversations. <laughs> and I'm in the mystery of it all. I keep saying that. I'm in the mystery of it all. And yet, mm -hmm. if, if I'm supposed to do these things, if I haven't... Uh, longing to do these things, then you know what? I'm going to do them. And I'm just mm -hmm. going to figure it out because every time I fall back and say, hey, you know what? I'll just get that part-time job. I have no time. I'm too tired. I'm, mm -hmm. You know, I'm just about paying my bills and I have no time to do anything creative or to really put my efforts into who I am as, as an activist, you know? And I am something of an armchair activist. Honestly, I do a lot of work at my computer I'm not somebody who's out there all the time. So it's from my office chair. You know, if I don't do it now, when will I do it? I guess is the question. And so I'm going back to that idea of, I've been through transitions where there's been absolutely no creativity in my life or the things I've wanted to talk about because I couldn't. I had to do what I had to do or I was choosing to do something else that I wanted to do that enriched my life, like you and your family and your, mm -hmm. you know, your new home and all of that. And yet now I'm at a point where I do have time to do this mm -hmm. and have yeah. conversations with people. And I, I realized that's what was missing a lot in mm -hmm. my life when I, you know, when I wasn't focusing on it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is what a blessing to be able to do that. Um, I really love that I can, that I can do that. That's, <laughs> that's what excites me. Well, and the blessing is having the time to do that too. And it really is a trade-off. I mean, well, it's interesting. I used to be um, a facilitator for the Your Money or Your Life program, Vicki Robbins and Joe Dominguez's program that was so, the turn of the century was such a huge bestseller. And my fiance will tell you I'm a cheapskate. I finally have owned that. And I actually say that, no, I'm just a cheapskate. I'm not going to buy that. And part of it is because the more money I spend, the more I am beholden to spend my time to earn money to afford that. Yes. And rather than saying, I can't afford something, it's more like, no, I choose to not afford it. So no, I very rarely go out to dinner, much to her chagrin. Well, I've changed a little bit, let's put it that way. <laughs> I see putting $40 down for a meal as that's, that could feed me for two days. And that also means that I don't have to earn that much money to pay for the meal. 
it's not worth it to me to have a lot of the accoutrements and a lot of the toys and all the, the, the cool stuff. It adds up. The little stuff especially adds up. That's one thing I learned. I actually, I actually became a financial recovery counselor too, where I would talk with people about doing spending plans who are in consistent debtors anonymous kinds of trouble and helping them through their process of coming to terms with money. That's the thing that I really liked about Joe Dominguez's and Vicki Robbins' work with Your Money, Your Life, because it really was about, is this spending of this money serving your purpose? Are you happy with the amount of money you spent? Are you happy with the amount of time it took to earn that money? They actually do an equation. They change it from time is money to money is time. Mm -hmm. So you figure out your real hourly wage after you subtract all, all the money it costs to have a job. And what your hourly wage is, which mine at the time was something like seven bucks an hour. <laughs> and it, that includes all the commute time. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Includes, well, it also includes also the sick times that you get sick because you're working too hard. It includes the time that you have to chill out at home before you're sane again. And when you add in all that time it takes to have a job and all the money it costs you to have a job, the number falls out to be very low. Now you can simply take it out of a value judgment and just simply say, well, what do you think? Is it worth it to buy a beer for an hour's worth of your time? Is that beer worth an hour of your time? Sometimes the answer is yes. Often the answer is no. When you start looking at it that way, th that system really appealed well to my cheapskatedness. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I can't, I wouldn't call it being a cheapskate. And you can, you're talking about you. I, you know, <laughs> I think there have been studies that show, and I know I, when I was doing corporate training. I don't, I can't remember what class this came up in, but talking about, uh, maybe it was using money as an incentive and how it's really not an incentive because when you get a raise at the beginning of the year or, you, you know, it, I think it took two paychecks before that raise made absolutely no difference in your life. You mm -hmm. know, it, it, you just incorporated it and the more people make, the more they spend. Right. Yes. So you can, you yeah. can be absolutely living on the edge with a six figure salary as much as if you're making less than 20,000 a year, you can absolutely be living on an edge in either circumstance. If you are not being mindful about, you know, about your money and, and how you use it. And I, I like what you said about equating it to time it's, it's time, it's energy. I was doing some volunteer work with a wildlife rescue and rehab because for my forest therapy, I see a lot of more than human beings and I wanted to know what to do. And it, it's about, I guess, 64 miles round trip, something like that. And I was making the trip once or twice a week. And I got a notice from my car insurance company saying that my rates were going to go up because I'm on a plan, I guess, that limits my mileage. And mm -hmm. I was way over my mileage. So they were going to raise my insurance rates. Well, mm -hmm. even though I wasn't making money to, to do this rehab work, now it was going to actually cost me more money, not just the gas, not just the wear and tear on my car, but my insurance was going to go up. And so I ended up making the choice that, you know, I, I can't go twice a week, but it wasn't worth my time, what it was going to cost me. It wasn't even a question of making any money. It was a question mm -hmm. of what money was going to go out as a result of this activity that I really wanted to do. And so I, you know, I had to pull back. I also think there's a story around money with systems thinking. If we ha gave money a seat at the table, and I've written about this, 
what would money say? What would money want? And what came to me as I was writing was that money is so unhappy <laughs> how it's being used uh -huh. that it's actually caught in this capitalist story that it's not necessarily serving even those who have it because it's so unhappy. It is, it's a resentful partner for most people. That money wants to be used for good. It wants to be shared. It wants, you know, wants to be a gift. But I gave money a voice and, and said, what does it want? How could we live in, in better balance with materialism, with capitalism, if money really had a voice at the table and told us how it wanted to be used, how it would benefit us if we used it. And it's, you know, it's like having a partner. There should be mutual respect and there should be love and support. And, you know, money has become this thing that gets us more things. Yeah. I, because, I, again, I think it's another story that needs to be rewritten, recrafted for us to live better lives. Even if our, you know, we are making progress and more of us are living better, we're still caught in this trap. Mm -hmm. Well, and yes, and more of us are living better physically. Yes. And that kind of circles back to around to what I was saying about um, Hans Rosling's work in the, his book, Factfulness, is that he, he actually said at one point, we all started out at level one, which is extreme poverty. About, you know, 100,000 years ago, everyone was at level one. And that's one of those, you know, you know how you're yelling at the radio moments or just throwing the book up in the air moments like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a huge difference between someone who's living at level one in the, in the barrios or favelas of Brazil versus what we've been reported to and what I've seen just a smattering of as far as um, how indigenous folks live in the way we grew up in as a species. There's a difference, it, you know, the, the Achuar folks that you and I have some familiarity with and a, and a modicum, just, you know, I'm recognized that it's just a modicum. Just, yes. So they live, yeah, they live on less than $2 a day and they're well fed. They have all the clothing they need. They don't struggle. They're not in a slum. It's a very big difference to be in the, the what, what I, what I want to ask Rosling about is, what about the larger structure in which that $2 doesn't buy things mm -hmm. versus where the other structures, where that $2 can hardly buy you anything? What's the difference between living in ancient mind or modern mind? Um, I, think that's very, I think that's very important. Because it, oh, yeah. yeah it suggests true. that an indigenous culture like the Ashwa are, are living in poverty and, and they're in such abundance in their world, in what, what, what they value. Mm -hmm. and that's, yeah. why, that's where we're often out of balance to say that I'm, you know, I don't know what level I am. You, you know, my You're level. in four. I'm in four? <laughs> You're you kidding anyone, me? Oh, yeah. Anyone who, has, anyone who has a car, a computer, a house, uh, yeah, right. a computer. Oh. I mean, now, now there may be levels within level four. I think there but, are. <laughs> but, and also, too, you, you, your point is well taken that I actually worked, you know, when I, was, uh, when I was doing financial recovery counseling, I worked with a couple people who made about five times what I made, who... And, it, and it's, it's insane. $10,000 clear a month, what they're bringing in. 
and they could not make ends meet. Yeah, that's the sickness of the, that relationship with money where it is so out of balance. You know, I would say to them, live my life for a year. See what the surplus is that you have and right. what you could do with that surplus. Right. You know, I, it just, I, I, I think that's where the imbalance is. The more you have, the more you think you have to have. The harder you work, the sicker you get, the more tight-fisted you are sometimes. And that's not true of everybody. There's some very generous people in mm -hmm. the world. And that speaks to their own value system. I'm really of the mind that I track my money fairly closely because, well, one, I am a control freak. And I will admit there are unhealthy sides to that. But the healthy side is, is that I want to know where the money is going. And I want to know how I can make ends meet and do what needs to be done and is calling to be done for me that serves me and others so that I don't have to continually make more. And you're right, it, it's actually going back to um, what, what, what thing you said earlier about how this is insane. Yeah, in, in, a, in, a large, in, in a large sense, we are, it's as if we are in an insane asylum because mm. there is so much craziness going on. And the, the one thing that the current um, presidential administration in the United States has shown us is that there is a very deep dark side to what's happening in the United States. One of the blessings, I hope it becomes a blessing anyway, that the shadow side has been revealed on, on both sides, both those of us who have values more to the left of a political spectrum and those of us who have to the right of it, there is a dark side here. Both sides need to grow. There's probably a better way of saying it because there's this the dichotomy, you know, either or black and white kind of thing going on that, that we're kind of trained to do. Well, you know, one shadow leads to another. In doing the research that I did for In the Soul's Waiting Room, the idea of a soul's, the overleaves of a particular soul type, there is a series of them that they're either going to lead to the light, in which all of them will lead to <laughs> yeah. the light, or they're going to lead to the shadow, in which all of them lead to the mm -hmm. shadow. And, and the shadow side that has come out, which I believe is an awakening for us, and it is an opportunity for us, Yes. Needs to be examined by everyone because I still see a lot of people siloing themselves, saying, well, they do this, well, they do that. And yet, mm -hmm. in, in many ways, even though they may be more, how do I say it? They may be more conscious of humanitarian things. That's not even a right way to say it, but we'll let that suffice for now because that's all that comes to me. They are acting out in this almost the same way that the others that they classify are acting. And I remember writing, if it's not right for, and we'll call them them and us just for the sake of this, which I don't believe there is a them and us, but if it's not right for them to call us names, then it can't possibly right, be right for us to call them names. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. And, and that's the biggest thing that I'm noticing. If we don't figure that out, have some humility about who we are and how we got here, no matter what the outcome of all this is, we're not going to learn enough to change it. 
we might pick up pieces and soldier on. That's not what's mm-hmm. needed here. That's not what this is all about. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The whole problem with saying them, they, us, and them, us, and them. I've started using the phrase those of us. So I actually at one point said, you know, well, those people who over there, and I was, boy, humiliating on, oh, really, what did you just say? Those people? Which, as someone who's on the top of the privilege pile, does not look very good. But what I've learned to say in that regard is that those of us who love whatever comes out of this administration, if it's not okay for those of us who believe those, those certain stories to call names, it's not also, it's those of us who disagree vehemently with them, it's not okay for those folks, for those of us to also use names. It's not going to work. And that term, those of us, has been, it's been kind of a shift for me, and it takes a little practice to do that. You know, so that's just a, just a, a, a little tool that I can offer in that regard. But to your larger point, yeah, the behavior on both sides of that conversation needs to change. And it's also incredibly difficult, especially if we don't meet one another face to face, especially if we don't come together in ways where we can see each other as human beings and start to feel the nuance of who the person is that yes they have certain beliefs that i don't agree with in fact that i almost react against or no i react against and yet there's still a humanity there that story came from somewhere Mm -hmm. let's examine that and also it's interesting too that you know being yeah, I, I have fun with the fact that um, I, I like to tell people that, uh, but I'm a registered Republican. And it's actually interesting to see people's physical response to that. And I did that in part to say, well, let's look at this as a human being. All right, tell me as a Republican what you're saying. As a human being first and a Republican who, who has Republican ideas, and certainly not across the spectrum. There is that labeling that everyone has. Mm-hmm. And it, it is fascinating to me to, to see myself in this same trap that if only everyone just believed as I did, things would be so much better. I don't know. I don't know if it'd be, it could be a crazier world. But I certainly, but I certainly every, <laughs> it, it wouldn't surprise me that most of us have that attitude, have that core story that if only everyone just simply saw the things the way I saw it. And I have this, you know, and I'm sure I wouldn't be surprised if you have it too. I am vehement in that. I know, I know. World would be a better place if only, right? If only people saw things the way I saw it. That my worldview is somehow superior and those who hold a different kind of worldview or a different kind of story, there's something wrong with them. I don't know how to break out of that because if I can't break out of my story, how would I expect anyone else, however crazy I think they're, they are, to break out of their story? That might be really the big project for us to do is to break out of hubris mm. on what we think we know and what we think should happen. I don't have all the answers. I have no idea where it all came from and where it's all going. Yeah. It goes back to what you originally said about story. You know, what we see, you and I could look at the same thing and we're seeing two separate things and neither one of those things are real. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
I know we could just talk on and on and on. I always want to invite you to more conversations so we can continue yes. being mindful of our time as well today. I thank you. I thank oh, you. You're welcome. It just feels good to have these conversations with you. I learned a lot from what you said today. I, you know, got to share a lot. So thank you. I know we didn't even get to talk about the seeker and the sage. So, uh, you know, I, well, I want, we well, no, didn't get I to, we, didn't, we didn't get to talk much about, um, uh, about your work too. In the soul's waiting room. In the, yeah. In, in the soul's waiting room. So. Which does talk a lot about the, our current. I mean, time. Yeah. Yeah. And, our, and, and both of, yeah, yeah, both of our works do that. They do. And so let's do that. Let's plan some time to, um, to do that as well. Sure. I look forward to it. That would be fun. But thank you for today. Go out and create conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. <laughs> That's my tagline. So, Good. you know, have more of those conversations so that you really do feel that you're spending time there. We need you and we need your voice. Mm. Oh, thank you. Well, and thank you so much for inviting me into this. This is really wonderful. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So till next time. 